With your Bible open to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, I want to speak this morning on the church with power and how God uses men and women to make that church a church with power. May we pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this Sunday morning and all the praises of the Lord Jesus that have been sung both by the choir and the congregation and Miss Janice and Brother Lloyd and the juniors. And Lord, we just come together to praise the Lord. And we ask that now you would open our hearts, that you would stir this place with the power of the Holy Spirit. May someone who has never been saved come to Christ. And may every believer have a unction, a urgency in his heart to want this place, Glendale Baptist Church, to be a church with power. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. The book of Revelation has 22 chapters. The outline of the book of Revelation is chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus gave to John the vision of the Revelation. You'll notice that the book is not called Revelations. It is called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It is something that God gave to Jesus to show to his servant John, and these were signified or symbolized by a series of visions throughout the book of Revelation. Now in chapter 1, verse 19, the Lord Jesus said, John, write the things which you have seen. That's the vision of the glorified Christ, chapter 1. The last view the world had of Jesus was on a cross. His face was mangled. His back was all riven with those awful lashes. His brow was pierced by the thorns. His hands and his feet were nailed to the cross. There was a sword that had been pierced into his side and there was blood and water coming out. And the mobs of Jerusalem passed by and hissed on him and said, if you're really the Christ, come down and save yourself and us. That's the last view the world had of Jesus. And much of the world today has that same view. The church with the largest number of people in all the world has as its symbol a crucifix with Christ still on the cross. I want to tell you, Jesus is no longer on the cross. He died. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. Three days later, he was raised from the dead and Christ is risen. He is alive. Jesus is alive today. Now, the only ones that saw the living Jesus after the crucifixion were men of faith. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, they appeared to James, he appeared to Peter, he appeared to the disciples, he appeared to over 500 at one time. But the implication is these were all people of faith. And now the Lord says, John, I want you to write 
And the first thing you're to write is the vision of the glorified Christ, chapter one, the things you've seen. We talked about that in a service the other day. Secondly, write the things which are. This refers to chapters two and three, the churches. This is the church age. The third thing, write the things which shall be hereafter. Beginning in chapter four and going through chapter 22, the things which shall be hereafter. Today we focus on the things which are, chapters two and three of Revelation. Now there are seven churches mentioned here. These seven churches were real churches in the day in which Jesus, which, in which John lived. The church at Ephesus, the church at Sardis, the church at Smyrna, the church at Pergamos, the church at Thyatira, the church at Philadelphia, the church at Laodicea. They were all churches that were real in that day. I want you to notice they were not the only churches in existence then. These were just seven selected churches. that were symbols of the church throughout all the ages. And when the Lord told John to write the things which are, he was talking about the things which are in this church age. Those seven churches were real churches in that day. Those seven churches symbolized the church of the ages that would come. The seven ages of the church. The Ephesus age. The Smyrna age. The Thyatira age. The Pergamos age. The Sardis age. The Philadelphia age. The Laodicean age. The third thing I want you to notice about those churches is that in every age of the church, there would be churches just like all seven of those. Now, as we think of this this morning, we need to classify our church and think in our hearts, what kind of a church does God want our church to be? What kind of a church do I want our church to be? As we look at it in light of these seven churches, we're in the church age. We do not know when the church age will close, but the scripture clearly teaches that when Christ comes in the air for his own and the dead in Christ rise first and which we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with the Lord, that's when the church age will close. It could be soon. It could be today. It could be this week. I do not know the day. I just know he's coming. The Lord did not tell us the day or the age. He didn't put a date on the calendar, but he did give us some signs. We don't have time to talk about those signs today. They're found in Matthew 24. But it is important that we view these churches and determine what kind of a church we want our church to be. And the churches are composed of individuals. As we look at this, Will you follow along in your Bible, please? We'll look at chapter two, verse one. Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who worketh, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them who are evil. And thou hast tried them who say they're apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. 
The first age of the church was the church that was leaving its first love. And before Paul went to the Appian Way and died for his faith, he began to warn of the church that was leaving its first love. If you will turn in your Bible to Second to First Timothy chapter four, you'll see some of those symbols and signs. First Timothy chapter four, the church that was leaving its first love. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving by them who believe and know the truth. In that early age, already there was false doctrine creeping in and there was a warning Jesus was giving, you're leaving your first love. Now what is the first love of the church? Jesus. The first love of the church is Jesus. He's the one I love. He's the one I love. Fairer is he than the lily to me. He's the one I love. And perhaps one of the best descriptions of getting saved is that you fall in love with Jesus. Everybody that I know of that gets saved, the first thing he wants to do is to tell others, Jesus has come into my heart. You love him. And we sing, I love him, I love him, because he first loved me and purchased my salvation on Calvary's tree. I love him. Do you really love him this morning? How much do we love him? There's a song that we sometimes sing, I love him, I love thee, I love thee, I love thee, my Lord, but how much I love thee, my actions will show. And the Lord Jesus was grieved in his heart. He said to that church at Ephesus, thou hast left thy first love. I know a lot of good things about you. Notice all those things, he said, I know your works, your labor, your patience. Thou canst not bear them who are evil. Thou hast tried them who say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Wonderful, wonderful record of good works, good things. But why did you do it? Somebody said the average church is so geared and so mechanized and so organized that if the Holy Spirit were withdrawn, that church could keep on doing the same thing it's doing for the next 25 years and nobody would know it. Do we really serve him? Do we sing because we love him? When we sang those songs earlier today, heaven came down and glory filled my soul. I'll tell you, it was thrilling here to sing that this morning. I felt like you loved him. I felt like you entered into that. And those precious boys and girls that sang, this is the day, this is the day the Lord hath made. And there was rejoicing, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, but we always have to be on the watch out lest we don't love him like we ought to love him. How much do we love him? The second church is the church at Smyrna. And if you look in your Bible at verse eight, uh, unto the angel of the church at Smyrna write these things, 
saith he that was alive that was dead and is alive, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. But be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. The church at Smyrna was a church that was under persecution. It was, under, it was in trouble. They were having problems, burdens, heartaches. They were, their, their back was against the wall, so to speak. They were not very wealthy. They were not very large. They were suffering persecution because they had stood true to the Lord. Not one word of criticism is uttered against that church at Smyrna. Jesus said, I know your works. I know you've labored and borne the burden in the heat of the day. I know, I know it. I know your trials. Brother Richie spoke of some trials that we have. Brother Lloyd sang while ago and melted our hearts. I must tell Jesus all about our trials. Jesus knows it. Some of you have had unbelievable burdens in your life. Somebody dear to you has left. Someone you thought would be true to you the rest of your life just left. And it hurts. Some of you have been touched by the death angel. Your home has been invaded. Some of you have the sentence of death in your bodies. You're ill. You're physically, you're physically in trouble. Jesus says, I know all about that. I just want to warn you. Don't worry about what Satan will do to you. Don't worry about it. He'll, he'll, all he can do is put you in prison for 10 days. Now that 10 days doesn't mean just 10 days. It could be 10 years. It could mean 100 years. I think of dear Lester Roloff. Nobody went through more burdens than he did. And and our America, our dear precious America, put that dear godly man in jail because he refused to accept a license for his school in Texas. Good man. God, Jesus said, I know what you're going through, Lester. I know all about it. It's all right. Fear none of these things. They may cast you into prison. The devil may get you for 10 days. What that means is his time is limited. The devil isn't going to be successful ultimately just a limited time be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee the crown of life and you know what that means be faithful if need be to martyrdom you may have to die for your faith just be faithful just keep on keeping on it could mean when you first get saved, just take off like a jet airplane and keep on going and keep on going. And don't ever get to a plateau where you say, well, I've got it made now. I can just rest. We don't rest till we get home. And then there's rest for the weary. How much are we willing to suffer for Jesus' sake? How much are we willing to give and give and give? Last night we had a wonderful youth rally. Wonderful. God bless this place was just about filled. I thank God for the, the ones that came.
Brother Buster wasn't able to be here. He's always here. But he was taking care of his dear wife who's had surgery. And I respect him for that. God bless you, Buster. And God bless Abby. But we had so many people here. And we had a glorious hour. And God blessed. You know, I feel bad for people that don't have a hunger to be under the Word of God. They just say, well, I guess that's a youth service. I, I'll, I don't have to go to that. It's like looking for something you can get out of. <laughs> I never have understood that. Why would anybody want to get out of something like that? That's meat for the spiritual life. God blessed in a wonderful way in that meeting. And you know, I want to tell you, how much do you love Jesus? How much are you willing to suffer for his namesake? The suffering church. During the years from 100 to 300 A.D., that was the Smyrna age. And the church was under severe persecution. In many places, it was against, against the law to go to church. That is symbolized by what the officials said to Peter and John one day when they put him in prison. They said, don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And when the Lord let them out of jail, they got out on the street the next day and were preaching again in the name of Jesus. And they came and arrested them again and said, we, we thought we told you to not speak anymore in this name. And Peter and John said, we'd better obey God than man. Do you feel that way? Listen, it's going to get worse before it gets any better. We're living in what some describe as the post-Christian America. And there is a bias against Christian faith. Now, you know that I'm not a segregationist. I love black people. But I want to tell you, you can't say much against black people today without getting in severe trouble. You can't say much against Jews without getting in severe trouble. You can't say much against any minority group without getting in a lot of trouble. You can't even say much against homosexuality without getting, running the risk of somebody coming down your throat on it. But you can say anything you want to against Christians. Fair game on the radio, on television, anywhere else. And I want to submit to you to get worse. Jesus said, don't be afraid. Fear none of these things. The devil will cast some of you into prison. You may be tried for 10 days. His time is limited. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee the crown of life. I must move on. He spoke of the church in verse 12. Write to the angel of the church at Pergamon. Write these things, saith he that hath a sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's throne is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that bear, hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate, repent 
but I will come quickly. The church at Pergamos was the church that was filled with false doctrine. They didn't believe right. Now this church is represented by the age from about 300 to 800 AD. A church age in which false doctrine was rampant. They began to teach baptismal regeneration. You had to be baptized to be saved, to see the face of Jesus. They transformed baptism immersion into sprinkling so they could sprinkle all the troops and go out and conquer in the name of Jesus and other false doctrines. Specifically named here is the doctrine of Balaam. And you know what that doctrine was. Balaam was a prophet. Balak was a king of a nation. And the people of Israel were about to march through the land. And Balak wanted to have those people cursed. So he summoned Balaam, who was a seer, sort of a prophet. I don't know whether he's a fortune teller or whether he was a prophet of God. I don't know. He says some good things in Numbers. He just may have been a, a prophet of God that got off, off the wrong, on the wrong road. Anyway, he, hired him, he wanted to hire him to come and curse the Israelites. And Balaam said, I can't do that. What God has blessed, I can't curse. And he did this two or three times. And finally, Balaam came and he said, again, I can't do that because God told me that I can't curse them. And then he began a whisper campaign. But he said, Balak, I'll tell you how you can curse them. I can't do it, but I can tell you how to do it. He said, you throw a big shindig down here in the holler, down here in the in the valley. And get all your girls to go down there with miniskirts on or shorts, practically nothing on, look nude, as nude as they can look. And then you invite all the Israeli boys to come down there and have a big dance. And I want to tell you, that'll curse them. Balak said, that's a great idea. I'll do it. And he threw a big party down in the valley. And all those Girls went down there with their shorts and their miniskirts and their rock music and all the other. And they invited the Israeli boys to come down. And they came down. And they got all hyper. And they got all aroused. And there was a big sexual orgy down there. And God had to curse Israel because of what Balak, Balaam had told Balak. Now I want to tell you. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ today has lowered its standards. We have very few standards. And we say it doesn't make any difference what women wear. It doesn't make any difference what boys wear. It doesn't make any difference what kind of music you listen to. Just do anything. The world is doing it. Let's do it. And that's the curse of the church. And Jesus said, I have somewhat against you because you have therein the doctrine of Balaam that cost caused Israel to sin. Do you want a church like that? Church at Pergamos? There's another church. The church at Thyatira. Verse 18. 
Unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine bronze. I know thy works, and love, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and hast and the last to be more than the first, notwithstanding I have a few things against thee, because thou allowest that woman Jezebel, who calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. I give her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. This is the church at Thyatira. It represents the church age from 800 to about 1200 A.D. And during that period, the church was filled with immorality. There were popes at Rome and Constantinople that vied for, their, for each other. And uh, they excommunicated each other. And they had live-in mates and so on. You just read, it's in church history. And that drifted down into the church. And the church was all messed up with false behavior. Jesus said, I have somewhat against that church, critical of it. And I want to ask you, do you want the church to be like the church at Thyatira with false doctrine that lives, that leads to false living? There are some people today who would silence the voice of the preacher. They would say, preacher, don't talk like that. If you don't talk like that, I'll go to some other church down the street where they don't talk like that. Do you want that? Is that what we want as a church? Let me go on. Look in chapter 3, verse 1. Unto the angel of the church in Sardis, write these things, saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works. Thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful, strengthen the things which remain and are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch. What is he saying here? You have a name that you're alive and you're really dead. Now this is the church of the Reformation. A great thing happened in 1517 when Martin Luther nailed those 99 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church and ushered in the Reformation. And they became sound theologically and dead spiritually. Had a name that was alive, but it was dead. Now listen, ladies and gentlemen, we can study the Bible. We can believe right. We can be thoroughly orthodox. We can have everything all the uh, Johnson and tittles of the Word of God correct, and we can have correct interpretation, and we can be a Bible church. But if we don't have the Holy Spirit's power, we're a church with a name that's alive, but it's really dead. We need the power of God. We need the love of the Holy Spirit to empower us. I want to hasten quickly to the Philadelphia church. If you look in chapter 3, verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write these things, saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it. For thou hast, for thou hast a little strength, 
and has kept my word and has not denied my name. The church at Philadelphia was the church with an open door. God said, I'll give you a green light. You're a church filled with love. You're a church with the right doctrine. You're a church with the right motive. You're a church that cares about a world in need of the gospel. This church represents the church from about 1700 to the year maybe 1925, 1950. The church that was reaching out to an entire world. This was the modern missionary movement. Modern missions. William Carey was raised up by God. He said, I think we're under obligation to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. He said that in an associational meeting one day and, and the chairman of the group, a, a great Baptist, respected Baptist preacher said, young man, sit down. If God wants to convert the heathen, he can do without your help or my help. And William Carey sat down for a few minutes, but he couldn't stay seated because God had put it in his heart. And he led the Lord's church in that age to care about missions around the world. And that became the great mushroom time when world missions spread out and the gospel of Christ was carried like a torch around the world. And William Carey was a Baptist. Thank God for him. And thank God that Baptists have had that mission of carrying the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. In the convention the other day, we heard that today we have nearly 10,000 home and foreign missionaries. In addition to that, many churches like ours support some other missionaries that are not under the foreign mission board, but go out because they could not be appointed or they would not be appointed and they're out serving the Lord. And so we have missionaries around the world. But I wanna tell you, we at Glendale Baptist Church need to strengthen that. We need to give more to missions. We need to give of our sons and daughters to carry the message of Christ around the world. We need to go with all the going heart that is within us unto the ends of the earth and reach out and touch men and women and boys and girls for the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we want this church to be a missionary church? You know, in our area, the Baptist churches are called missionary Baptist churches. Now, many of our Southern Baptist churches have dropped that name. I don't know why we dropped it. We ought to have a name out there that says the Glendale Missionary Baptist Church of Christ and so on. We are a missionary church. Now, those other churches that call themselves missionary, thank God for them. But we're a missionary church. But in order to, to have that name, we need to be missionary in minded, a missionary in spirit. I'm praying for a day when this church will give 50% of everything we receive to world missions. That's God's plan. When we do not do that, when we do not reach out and, and, and support missions around the world, we become little and dwarfed. And I think one reason, maybe perhaps a reason, that some of the blessings have been withheld from us at this church is because we've been a little bit stingy in our missions. I've not heard any amens this morning on anything. That's fine. I didn't ask for them. But I'm telling you what God has laid on my heart. This church needs to give more to missions 
And the only way we can do it is for all of us to tithe our incomes and then give over and above the tithe an offering to the Lord. And if all of us would tithe our incomes, our weekly offering would be six to $10,000 a week. And there wouldn't be any need for, for other special offerings. Ladies and gentlemen, my prayer is that God will make us a Philadelphia church, a church with an open door. There's one other church mentioned, the Laodicean church. Look in your Bible at chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Do we want to be that kind of church? Neither hot nor cold, lukewarm, just doing anything, just not get excited about anything too much. A lukewarm church. As you think of these seven churches, what would you like Glendale Baptist Church to be like? The church at Ephesus that has left its first love. The church at Smyrna that's under tremendous suffering. The church at Pergamos had false doctrine. The church at Thyatira that had false living. The church at Sardis had a name that was alive but was really dead. The church at Laodicea, neither hot nor cold. Or the church at Philadelphia. with a green light, with a care about a world. And Jesus said, the door is open, go. I'll tell you how we can be that church. In 2 Chronicles seven fourteen is the formula. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. God will do it. Are we willing? Are we willing to meet his conditions? Leonard Ravenhill said in his, one of his books, he said the problem with the church today is we do not pray. We count on everything else, but we don't pray. He said, I'm convinced that if the church would really get down to the business of praying, all the problems would be gone. And there would be revival, a spiritual revival, a personal revival, a church within a local place in revival. Oh, beloved friends, let's pay the price in prayer. We need to have prayer groups gathering various places, like after a service. Somebody just say, you know, I feel the impression to pray. Let's go over here and pray a few minutes. I remember some of the times when our church was in a heat of revival for a number of years. There was a prayer room downstairs. Lots of times, some people would be late coming to the service. They'd be down there praying Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, before teen time, other times in the week. 
Are you willing to pay the price in prayer? I believe that's the key. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin, I'll heal their land. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this tremendous truth from the Word of God. Help every one of this of our church here, our precious, beloved Glendale Baptist Church, to examine our own thoughts and see if we're willing to pay the price to be a Philadelphia church, a church with an open door, a church that cares about a world in need of the gospel, cares enough to attend the services on Sunday morning and Sunday night, cares enough to go on the next streets and in the back alleys, cares enough to bring your tithes and our offerings, cares enough to say, Lord, wherever you lead me, I'm willing to go. I surrender all. I pray that there's one person in this place without Jesus that they'll come to Christ today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's stand, please.